Talking industry, topical debate from the world of engineering, automation, and manufacturing. This Talking Industry episode is brought to you by Coolcar. Good morning and welcome to another Talking Industry podcast. Um, my name is Andy Pye. I'm consultant editor at DFA Manufacturing Media, um, who look after a range of print and uh, online publications relevant to manufacturing and automation. Um, I have two speakers with me today, which is, uh, which is excellent, and we'll get them to feed off each other. Uh, I have Luke Rogers, who's Commercial Director at AI Build, and Kevin Colkey, uh, who's Area Sales Manager at KUKA Robotic Joining and Additive Manufacturing. Um, to start with, Luke, do you want to give me a little bit of background to your company and yourself? Sure. Thanks, Andy. Um, so, yeah, my name's Luke Rogers. I'm the commercial director at AI Build. We're an um, enterprise software company um, specifically focused on additive manufacturing, really working on increasing the capability of what you can do inside 3D printing, automating that process as much as we possibly can to make it easier for using the software and the, and the technology, and also focusing on a little bit on AI to improve the quality of the parts. Uh, my background personally is uh, from mechanical engineering. Uh, I've been around 10 years now in the additive manufacturing space uh, and really focus on sales during the company at AI Build. Excellent. Kevin, tell me a little bit about yourself as area sales manager at KUKA. Oh, thank you, Andy. My name's uh, uh, obviously Kevin Colkey. I, I've been working at uh, KUKA for over three years now, and uh, we've been really fortunate to uh, be involved in the additive manufacturing sector uh, for many years. But uh, recently, more importantly, we've had some alignments with some really strategic companies, AI Build being one of them, uh, to help drive our robots. And, and in this additive manufacturing space, we want to be able to use the robots very precisely and in a controlled manner to, manner to be actually get the uh, parts uh, built the way they've been designed on CAD. And quite simply, we've been able to achieve that in many ways, uh, especially in this plastics industry. Brilliant. Okay, well, um, additive manufacturing has come a long way. Uh, when I was a lad, it was known as uh, rapid prototyping. And sometimes it's known as 3D printing, but more often now it's known as additive manufacturing. And to start with, I'm going to ask Kevin just to give us an overview of the process, where it's come from and where it's going um, to uh, via where it's been and where it is now. Um, so over to you, Kevin, for um, um, uh, an overview, please. Oh, thank you. Uh, additive manufacturing has been around for a long time. Uh, starting with desktop printers uh, over 20 years ago. I remember back um, developing little parts and pieces just to see what it was going to look like in 3D uh, because we were using cardboard cutouts. And then we started using the plastics and, and it really made a big difference because we actually start getting movable parts. And this has really morphed into an area where we needed parts that were much larger for tooling, for example, or even... Uh, making up anything from furniture to even larger parts. Uh, people are even printing boats now. So how does that work? So we needed to be able to use um, a medium where we could get accurate positioning all the way through and still have long reach. And so robots became this 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 medium to get the, the motion and 3D print quality that was required, uh, similar to a desktop. 
uh, we've also been able to partner with AI Build for software, and they really do a great job in helping us uh, with the motion of our robots and the and the accuracy of the build uh, in many different ways that Luke will get into. But uh, it's taken it to a whole new level now, where we can actually three D print uh, parts for multiple types of industries, and 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 the sectors are are growing rapidly now in this particular area. So. Um... Many people, such as myself, perhaps, have, have grown up with the idea that this is more of a prototyping um, activity rather than manufacture, and that's changing, isn't it? Um, some of the limitations might have been size, available materials, production volumes. Um, that's changing. How is it changing and why is it changing? Uh, the first thing is the... The rapid prototyping now, uh, it, it can, with using robots, the, the, the method that, that's happening, you can actually get more volume, more speed, and it becomes a more viable process. Um, so once you've done your print, you can also uh, take that print, test it, make sure any modifications and reprint. Uh, it becomes much more cost effective as well. Instead of developing all the tooling of past and all the extra CAD that you have to go through, all the testing of the tooling, um, tweaking everything, when you can actually use a 3D print and modify it with maybe a CNC process, uh, post-processing, or you can also uh, just modify it uh, using a, a multiple print, depending on the size of the part and what the cost quality is. But with material types that are available now, um, you can get into uh, modifications where the, the, the material actually becomes uh, very lightweight in comparison to any types of metal. Um, and this becomes uh, very, very advantageous for anything from tooling all the way to post-processing. Uh, uh, it, it's very effective. Okay. Um, so for any given part, it's important to make some sort of business case to compare the uh, feasibility of, of uh, additive manufacture against alternative manufacturing processes that you might consider. Luke, how, how would you go about making a business case for a particular application? Yeah, this is always the, uh, the, the killer question that every company comes up against when they start going down this road. So uh, there's a lot of different capabilities that 3D printing additive manufacturing can bring or improvements in that area. Typically, we're talking around things like lead time, uh, being able to print the part where you need it in a specific location uh, rather than having to build it somewhere else and ship it over, for example. And you have the capability of uh, being able to consolidate parts. So be able to bring something which would typically take 20 or 30 different parts together, nuts, bolts, screws, et cetera, and just print one part only in that area. And that's really uh, something which will improve upon construction time overall, uh, labor costs which are going into creating that, um, and the maybe stock um, holding the parts physically in stock. And that's really the, the big, um, picture which needs to be focused on it shouldn't just be the cost of the one part it should be looking at the entire process of what that single part replaces in the entire um, supply chain uh, so that is definitely a big part of it should also look at things around lightweighting uh, for example uh, so often additive parts are used specifically in areas where you want to reduce weight from it and then you're looking at the uh, the benefits of that so could you have uh, more uh, engine capacity in or uh, 
luggage capacity i should say inside an aircraft because you've got less weight inside the part could you be putting something on the end of a robot arm for example which won't move or need as much power to move around there's lots of different things which come into that uh, which can be a big saving from um from the business case point of view now i'm quite old-fashioned so would you get a piece of paper and uh, compare the two side by side or, or is there a more sophisticated way of doing it um I, I mean, the side by side comparison does tend to work. I mean, the, the, the thing which <laughs> we do, we, we do, you know, <laughs> while we, we're talking about modern technologies here, that ultimately you do need to make sure uh, there's a price point comparison. There's no way, for example, that you'd use 3D printing to print a solid block of plastic, uh, you know, a bar, <laughs> because you could do it, but it just wouldn't be economically practical, all those kind of things. But you're really looking for for that uh, those killer applications. And uh, I can go into a couple of those later on if you like. Uh, but ultimately, it is a comparison. The trick is to make sure you're thinking about the entire process chain, particularly how it's going to be used at the end um, of the in, in, in production or in, in end use to make sure that you're taking all those savings into account and not just focusing on the very specific, I want to make this in this area or I want to make that in that area, if that makes sense. Mm. I mean, your parts consolidation, I think, is a very important part of it. I mean, you wouldn't use this. Um, you talked about the plastic block, but you equally wouldn't use it to compete with an injection molding machine or a die casting machine if you were dealing with metals, which are churning out, you know, tens of thousands of parts and more. Um, that, that's yes. really the area, is it? But, but the, the parts consolidation makes a huge difference because you can then start to look at the whole process. Yeah, ex exactly right. Exactly right. And we're talking about why it's being adopted more as well, currently compared to where it was 10, 20 years ago. But a big part of that is that people are coming through who understand this process, who've grown up around this process and can understand that when they're designing parts, they can look at the bigger picture. So rather than just taking one tiny bit of a bigger system they can, and trying to just do a direct like for like replacement, they can look at the entire structure and go, actually, I could just print the entire thing, remove 30 or 40 different steps in the manufacturing process and have an end use component which comes out the end of it. So that's one of the reasons why I was getting that adoption as well, is that there's just a greater quantity of designers, engineers, people who are thinking along this this line and, and really trying to push the boundaries of, of what can be done inside these technologies. I mean, it strikes me that this is, this is quite an environmentally conscious um, way of manufacturing as well. You mentioned lightweighting. Um, parts consolidation, that's a good thing because it, it makes supply chain issues easier because everything is being made in one place and, and pretty much where it's needed rather than having to import parts from the other side of the world or whatever. Mm -hmm. So is that a factor that comes into some of your um, discussions with potential customers? You're very correct, and I should have raised that when it comes to a, a from a business case point of view. So, hundred uh, percent. So, um, you know, the name kind of gives it away. It's an additive process rather than a subtractive process. So, you are adding material only where it's needed. You are not taking a big block and then removing 50, 60, 70, 80 percent of that material and just chucking it straight in the bin. Uh, you are printing where you need it, so you're re reducing on the supply chain, uh, particularly in polymers. We're using a lot of thermoplastic materials, which are inherently reusable and recyclable. In fact all the materials that we use in our lab when we're testing the software out are all recyclable materials we've used oceanic waste we've used medical grade waste we've used all these different waste products but repurpose them into a, a raw material which can be printed 
minimal amount of material needed you can put lattice structures inside it to really reduce the amount of weight you need and then you can come up with an end use part which is using recycled materials printed where it's needed and only using the material when it's actually required that's very interesting that you can use recycled materials i, I hadn't realized that so that's that's definitely a plus in that direction as well and it perhaps leads us neatly into a brief consideration of which of the market sectors where the process is is making most ground kevin what what would you see as as being well interesting that we were finding a lot of uh uh transitional changes now in automotive because typically you'd have stamping and all the big presses and all the tiered companies uh supplying the automotive field where now we've got uh, uh r d labs within the companies themselves can actually start making these um, prototypes that they want to be able to uh, create much quicker, much faster, um, get results fast as well. And as a result, uh, from from CAD to product uh, is much quicker and far more efficient as well. The cost model goes way down, uh, especially for bespoke and, and customized uh, cars. Uh, it, it really makes sense, especially at the prototype stage. And if they decide to do a high volume product, obviously they've got the, the models and the data that they can do. But if it's a, a low volume uh, car manufacturing, then they can just print them and, and use them that way. They're also using them in aerospace. And I think Luke, you could probably uh, help us in that for the airliners. Yeah, I mean, I say aerospace is definitely a key one. Mm -hmm. uh, we basically say any any large transportation company effectively. So anywhere they want them to print large parts bigger than like a, a motorbike kind of size. Uh, so trains, planes, cars, et cetera, boats. Um, that is where we see a lot of the, the, the need and drive for the uh, aircrafts looking for interior cabin parts, for example, um, looking for uh, aids and fixturing and bringing in um, those kind of tooling applications, particularly when you're looking at, you know, you're not talking millions of planes which are being printed or being built, I should say, you're looking at, you know, hundreds to thousands of these kind of items and the tooling costs and the lead times to get those toolings are prohibitive, um, particularly in um, composite layup toolings, because there's a big drive in aerospace to move towards more composite manufacturing in, in wings and panels and things along those lines. And to have tooling, which you can put into an autoclave, which can normalize temperature much faster, which can hold its shape uh, for, um, inside those uh, conditions. That's a real key application we're seeing inside that sector. Yeah, I, I, I think that's the ideal sort of volume area, isn't it, for this type of process? I mean, it's very interesting that that it can extend into automotive and, um, and through customised vehicles and, and sort of medium volume rather than high volume, I, I guess. And, um, you know, the, another area where customization, personalization is is becoming more important, I suppose, is the medical field. Um, is, is that an area that you're looking at in uh, in detail? So medical is probably one of the biggest users of additive manufacturing at this stage. Um, it's basically any any of those Invisalign braces and things on the hose line that that is all basically pre printed. The the reason we're probably not looking at it too much from our side is just because of a scale aspect to it. You know, most of the things which we need to either use for in the body or around the body are relatively small in comparison. So um, the, all the existing technologies, the desktop kind of printers, uh, those are probably a bit more suited than, you know, maybe getting a, a two meter reach robot, for example, trying to print something for along those lines. But there's a little bit of work around prosthetics, um, particularly around um, 
cups or um, or putting over uh, stumps, etc. That is something which could be looked at, particularly around the uh, greater flexibility that the robotic systems can give you. So moving away from this layer by layer approach, uh, in a non-planar, more conforming printing approach to those um, aspects, that's really quite interesting because it um, helps them with um, effectively feel, touch, just comfort for the for the user and strength requirements inside the part you remove. When you move away from those horizontal layer lines, it, it changes your mechanical properties of the overall part, and gives you some performance on there. But again, it's the it's finding the right application of all these kind of things. We talk about thousands being a good kind of um, level, but ultimately it comes down to the part. If you get something which consolidates 500 parts into one item, then suddenly you could be into hundreds of thousands or more if it's the right component with the right business case associated with it. So, in expanding the envelope of the process further. Um, the integration of your software with Cooper's hardware is is quite crucial, isn't it, as uh, building a system. So uh, let's see if we can sort of expand further into that area now and uh, find out what that offers and, and what the two of you are doing working together. Um, sure. Luke, do you want to start that and then we'll uh, we'll get Kevin involved as well to explain the hardware side. Yeah, no worries. Um, so it's quite very well known in the industry of, of, of additive manufacturing that to get the highest performing part of your printer, you really need to have your software and your hardware integrated, working really well together and getting the most out of that uh, capability. Uh, and that's really what the, the relationship between AI Build and KUKA in this, in this regard is doing. So our software is, is able to deeply integrate with the hardware uh, from Kuka's point of view, we are in custom post processes, so that you know the output of our of our software is driving directly in the KRL language for 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 Kuka, uh, and that allows the customers to really make the most out of of all the degrees of freedom that the robot systems offer them, the level of accuracy which those the robots can do, and then you know definitely market leading when it comes to that. Uh, accuracy, path following accuracy, etc., which is kind of key for, uh, for for 3D printing with robotics. Uh, but you need to be able to have those two systems combined. So when you are going around a corner, you need to be able to tell the instructions that you need to reduce the flow of the, the extrusion, uh, as well as slowing the robot down to go around those corners and create a quality finish on those areas. If you're going to be coming into a cantilever and overhang area, you need to be able to uh, maybe keep the speed of the robot, but change the extrusion width of the bead to allow it to step at a bit more of a supported level. There's a whole load of things which you need to have a deep integration into to be able to get the highest quality of part coming off those builds. This is a whole different world, isn't it, to yeah. a printer, you know? Oh, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a quantum leap different. You know, the, 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 the desktop um, slicing, the desktop printers, they are very basic. It's horizontal layer lines. It's, it's stacked on top of each other. They, they do some great stuff in there. There's no doubt about it. But, it, you know, if you try using those softwares to drive a six-axis robot, you're basically turning a, a very capable machine into a dumb three-axis system, and it's really not making the most out of what you can do with it. Very interesting, and and the accuracy would be much more limited, I, I would imagine, compared to. Yeah, that. I mean that comes down to without the resolution, um, and a big part of, particularly when you get to larger scale, is the problems which 
these problems are they exist in all different sizes of, of builds but at a smaller scale um you can get away with it because it's not as visible it's not as easy to see but when you start going to bead sizes which are like three four mil ten mils kind of sizes it's very visible it's very easy to see those defects and actually when you double in size you don't just double the the, the potential issues and quality you tend to do it by a factor of 10. So what you can get away with at a smaller scale, when you're at larger scales, you need to have a higher control, a higher level of detail and control over those systems. And we very much talk about um, being able to modify and control the inputs through the entire course of the build, applying different parameters to different geometries, different features inside that build to give you the highest possible consistent output at the end of that process. So Kevin, um, you know, You've got a lot of experience in uh, in Kuka robotic in Kuka robotics in uh, arc welding and, and processes like that, as well as uh, additive manufacture. What was it that you saw in AI build that made you realise that you were made for each other? Oh, it was it was very clear from the beginning that uh, first of all they wanted to use our robot, so that was a, a good to start. <laughs> it, it helps. <laughs> that made it quite easy. But it, uh, I think the second thing is is that they've got a team dedicated to helping processes, and it's been very easy for us uh, to come up with different ideas and processes and what what the market needs. Um, and I think that's the what we're looking at is what does the market need as opposed to us dictating what the market should need. Uh, and, and that's a, a real clear uh, path for us because you have to be very agile and, and the market that I've noticed, uh, it, it seems to be like every six months, there's a major milestone in the market change. And we've been able to uh, collaboratively work together to adapt to those, those conditions. Um, if we looked at three years ago when we were talking about this, uh, still, even I, I would say from a software perspective, when I say this generally across the board, not just AI build, uh, was at a very basic level. Yeah, you could do a lot of stuff and, and non-planar uh, printing was was in its probably infancy, infancy at, that, at that stage, uh, where now non-planar is just something we do. It's just, you just say, you, you press the button in the software, say, I want to do this non-planar and it works it out. It's that easy. So we've come completely different shift in, in, in way how we print and the quality of the print that Luke was talking about because the, the resolution is key for us because we can see it, the beads become much bigger now. We're not just talking about a, a one or two millimeter bead for a fine print that like you would be doing on a desktop. You're looking at something that's three, three to 10 millimeters wide. Um, <laughs> you could be zigzagging back and forth and doing all kinds of interesting things to create tooling. Uh, to lightweight it from uh, so going a little bit off track but the market has completely shift now mm. I mean that's really interesting I think um, you know the the I mean maybe explain a little bit more about what you mean by non-planar I assume you mean out of 2d um, applications or, or is it more sophisticated? yeah I'm going to let Luke explain <laughs> in exact detail what the non-planar uh, is capable and, and where they're at with that software if that this Talking Industry episode is brought to you by Cool Car. That's okay, Luke. Yeah, it's um, so the background of additive is you have a flat layer, horizontal, planar, 
you know, dead flat, like layers of a book and you stack them on top of each other until you get your, your part coming out of it. That is the way that every single technology inside of, of printing has been done since the dawn of time effectively. What we're talking about with the robotic systems, and you can do this a little bit on the gantry systems as well, but ro robotics give you a lot more capability, is the ability to break out that horizontal layer approach. Uh, and we, when we talk about non-planar, we're talking about moving through X, Y, and Z, so creating uh, smooth curves, uh, building upon those aspects, and giving you a lot more capability, which allows you to reduce the need for support structures. It can reduce the need for infill structures as well. So we can print, for example, completely unsupported single pass layers horizontally which it would be unheard of um, in terms of the printing community or at least was um, one of those you can never print something other than kind of 45 degrees uh, from build bed it needs to be fully supported you need to have all this kind of capability in, in there with the robots particularly when you can bring your head across and bring it out almost horizontally we've printed on the KUKA robots you know a two meter span of a of a unsupported um, of a particular part, for example. So you can really put start pushing your process in there. Uh, and for example, we have a um, uh, an oil and gas um, part, which when we were looking at it through traditional slicing approach, which would be horizontal with all the infill inside of it, that would have weighed about 120 kilograms to print the entire part changing the approach using these capping structures using the flexibility of the robots we reduced around 40 kilograms of infill out of that part so dropped it from 120 kilograms down to 80 kilograms and obviously that has an impact upon um, your build time as well so you start talking about these kind of percentage savings when you you know typically around going from subtracted to additive it's always the business case of we've reduced it by 30 percent weight 30 percent lead time etc now we're also having an, like the next iteration of that which is we're now talking about traditional printing horizontal versus a more flexible way of printing particularly at scale where you're also having a similar kind of uh, setting savings where you're going 30 percent reduction in time 30 percent reduction in weight for example so that's really the benefits of that. But I would encourage you guys, if you want to see some examples of that, go to our, go to our website and you can have a look at uh, all those kind of toolpaths on there. That will give you a much better idea than me trying to verbally explain it all to you guys. Definitely. And, and uh, I, I should emphasize that um, yeah, it's difficult to explain some of these concepts in words, although we are flapping our hands around as we do it. But <laughs> can't help it. You, you, you can't. You can't. You're not allowed to look at this while you're driving the car. So, so we have to direct you to other sources. And both um, both our speakers' websites, which are kuka.com and ai-build.com, will have links to videos which will show the process in a lot more detail. And I think that's the best way. Of, of, um, of, of visualizing the sort of things that can be achieved. Um, uh, they are also available, our two speakers, on uh, LinkedIn, uh, which we find is a very good way of, of um, developing our conversations that we have on Talking Industry into the future. So, um, you know, uh, anyone that's listening to this can, can join our uh, LinkedIn community and ask questions that way as well. Um, one of the questions that came to mind while Luke was speaking there was um, was the evolution of CAD-CAM systems, which I suppose has happened in parallel in a way, because they were very basic 20 years ago as well, weren't they? But, but now they can handle complex surfaces and volumes and shapes. So mm. that helps to integrate a whole process, doesn't it? From, from design concept right the way through to uh, additive manufacture. 
And is, is that something that's been a really important part of the, uh, the process for design engineers, Kevin? Yeah, the, 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 the whole CAD CAM, uh, uh, I would say software now has, has changed uh, completely in a different way with AI build software because they use a completely different methodology uh, to help our build process. And um, at the moment, we, we mainly use CAD CAM for subtractive only. Uh, so it, it, we, we keep it at that. Okay. Um... Luke, have you got any any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, so CAD has obviously developed over time, and we're now seeing more kind of things like um, topologically optimized structures, things like that, where you're you're almost generative design kind of coming in, where you're just setting the the input parameters and then clicking go, and you're coming up with this either. Uh, stress optimized part or even just a computer generated design, which are incredibly complex sometimes you know you're not something a, the human brain would typically design um, along those lines so then you have the challenge of how do you actually build those items and then again uh, printing does tend to help significantly in those areas uh, particularly if you can uh, allow the parts to be printed without the supporting structures etc or segment them up and we had a great example of that in an automotive customer where they had this optimized um end effector for 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 a robot um pick and place kind of system um, and there's no way you would have been able to print that or make it any other way other than 3d printing so that's definitely been a, a big change we are now moving as, as kevin kind of mentioned towards more of like a visual programming language uh, along these lines so uh, rather than saying this, here's a specific part, we're going to work and figure out all the details on this specific part only. And then the next time we have something, even if it's only slightly different, we're going to have to recreate that from scratch again. What we're talking about here is creating a, a recipe for lack of a better way of describing of, here are the rules that we want you to apply to this part when you're creating the toolpaths, et cetera. And that then can be reused. So you can just drop another CAD file at the top. It will just stream through that recipe and pump out the next thing so you can get incredibly complex shapes so for example uh propeller blades for is a good simple example mm -hmm. along this line you can have all different sizes shapes of propellers different hub sizes different number of blades etc but if you, you approach it with this recipe work you can actually have one operator which we do have inside our software which you put two inputs into and any um system or which is like a propeller which you put into any CAD file which comes in will output that kind of information so you can start to get into this more automated process and I think that's where we'll see more of the software aspects developing over time is more AI more machine learning aspects into that more generative design aspects and really reducing the load of the designers um, to do those kind of complex shapes and decision making requirements. That's not dissimilar, I suppose, Kevin, to the way you teach a, a robot when you when you're first setting it up. So is that an area where you would work closely together um, so that it would work that way? Yeah, we we have to actually know where the tool is. First of all, we talk about collisions so that they also have the uh, software parameters set up with that. Uh, so I guess coming back to the the CAD cam is we've, we've got the design of the of the robot, the actual um, whole simulation of the process already predefined. When we bring in the part itself and go through the slicing process, we have to use the, the AI build software and set up all the parameters of where clamps are, where collision points are, danger areas, and everything else. 
so that we don't uh, wreck any of the tools essentially and and because of the um uh parameters that are allowed to be uh correlated within the software it allows us a very quick success rate because if you're we hand programming to do this uh, i know of past when we first started off doing some of these works uh many years ago in the lab our added manufacturing was trying to use the robot software itself to actually create uh, different uh, layers. And then you're monitoring, you're watching, because we didn't have camera feedbacks, we didn't have input sensors, we're just physically watching the layers. And sure enough, the, the layer height changes, you put in, you want it to build up three millimeters each layer, but it keeps changing. <laughs> and the next thing you know, you're like, oh, I've got to change the program. So you have to stop the process and, and go back. And and now there's so much intelligence that's built into the software, uh, we can get feedback. And I'll kind of let Luke kind of uh, go through that process with you because the, the sensor inputs are, are very, very critical to the quality of the build now. And it gives us uh, credibility uh, at the end when we say, oh, we can print this and here's the data to prove it. Do you, want, do you want to quickly talk about that? Luke? Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, Sorry, Luke, if I put you on the spot again. No, 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 it's fine. <laughs> one of the most important, I, I think, changes in the software that's that's happened uh, in, in the past three to four years because uh, the, the data input is what everybody wants, and they wanted to verify that what you printed is true to the CAD. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a couple of things to pick up on there. One is the, again, part of the scaling of additive manufacturing is how can we de-skill for lack of a better word for it how can we make this more accessible to more people and that's around automating these processes making a little bit just so that your regular engineer can grab hold of it without maybe the 10-15 years experience of, of the of, of 3d printing and robotics in this situation and be able to start taking those systems and, and build upon them straight away and that's a big part of what the work which we've Kuka and I, uh, an AI builder doing is to really get that as easy and uh, and quickly get someone up and running with these systems, you know, within a matter of days rather than months and months and, and years and years of development. From kind of the development moving forward, um, what Kevin's talking about here is um, around uh, real-time defect detection. So with, with the software, we can have a real-time connection to the hardware. So we can pull back and expose all the sensor data which happens on those machines. So that can be visual cameras, thermal cameras, we've done microphones, vibration sensors, all sorts of different things. And the idea of that is to really understand why things fail. So additive manufacturing, one of the downsides of it, and one of the reasons why it hasn't necessarily moved all the way into production as fast as people probably expected is there's still a lot of work which needs to be done upfront to iterate through different parts and understand, you know, you have this kind of iterate, fail, iterate, fail, and eventually after two or three times, you get to a lockdown process, which gives you repeatable parts moving forwards. Now, that for us is waste. We don't want that in there. So we want to uh, understand why things are failing in builds and to stop that happening moving forward. So right now we're at a stage on the polymer systems where we can have sensors on the machine uh, and we can use our, our machine learning model, our AI model to uh, interrogate them for lack of a better way of describing it and identify defects in real time. So rather than having, as Kevin mentioned there, like one person watching the machine day and night, 24 hours a day, poor apprentice sat in the corner, <laughs> um, you've got you've got the, the computers looking at it, the software's looking at it, and it's going to give you that full quality report at the end of the build to understand exactly what's happened and the ability to play back 
that specific section of a build and say, right, we now know exactly what happened there. So if you're in your NCR meetings and you want your non-conformance report meetings and you're trying to understand what has happened, you don't have to rely upon people's gut feel or knowledge and expertise. You can actually physically look at it as it happened and make an, an informed decision on are you going to contest the part or are you going to scrap it or what are you going to do with it and you can show that to your customer the next stage on from this which is the future of where we're moving towards is understanding the root cause of why these things are failing and then if we know it's that material at that angle at that temperature for example which has like a 90 percent chance of failure anytime we bring a brand new part in which has never been seen before is going to understand that if we've got something like that in the toolpath, it needs to eliminate it from there. So it's like having 10,000 application engineers critiquing your first time you set up a toolpath with all their knowledge. They never forget anything. They never have any issues. And that's going to change your right first time and put up into your 90% kind of plus territory, which for us is one of the major reasons why things aren't necessarily moved through into production at the rate we probably expect at this stage is because you want to have that trust. You want to be able to press go on your printer, walk away with complete confidence that when you come back, you're going to have your parts sitting there ready to go. And that's really, you know, if you talk to anybody in additive, you'll know that they have, there's often a fear the first time you leave a machine with a brand new part, which you've never printed before, an unknown of will it come off correctly or will it or, or won't it? And that's really the, the key thing we're trying to solve. And you're improving reliability by learning from the past, in effect. Um, exactly, exactly. Yeah. We, 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 we see this more as a understanding of the past to improve the future. We're relying less upon physics-based uh, models. So you can do these kind of simulations where you rely upon equations and calculations, all the physics-based stuff to predict something which is going to happen. But they take a lot of effort and time and computational power to do and it's particularly when you get to the size of parts we're talking about in robotic printers it's, it wouldn't be unheard of to have a simulation running for you know a week to, to before you've even got results out of it if we go down a more machine learning process where you take the information you learn from it we can have that down to like seconds or minutes of, of time to create that kind of comparison you lose a little bit of accuracy about two to three percent from what we've seen but you know in terms of speed and, and iterating through that process faster it more than pays off at the end so we've moved seamlessly into the future really having given the the past and the Definitely. present good area. <laughs> um, the R&D process, does that happen in your premises or can it happen on a, um, a customer premises or is it a bit of both or... So one of the reasons why we've got such a nice relationship with Coo is we do have this facility in London, we do have machines there, and we do a lot of this testing on site. And we really believe that we don't want to use our customers as guinea pigs along this line. We want to make sure that the software is working really as effectively as we possibly can can get it. Um, so we do a lot of material development testing, bringing new materials in, making sure we fully characterize them. A lot of the work we do with the hardware, all the stuff we talked about with with sensors, etc. We're, we're doing in that area, but that's really to improve the software. We do think that R&D centers are a great use for this uh, for this technology, uh, especially when you can show this capability inside the organization. And we're really there to support customers in whatever uh, development activities that they want to be able to bring into their companies. And would they be able to use those techniques themselves when they have a new part, for example? Is that, is that with, with limited input from yourselves if, you, if the system is already there? Yeah, I mean, it, obviously, there's a there's a there's a scale of learning <laughs> with, with all these kind of things, depending on your starting point. Um, we've had people 
who've had zero training at all from our you know one-on-one trainings who've got into it understood the visual programming language and just run with it with uh, some basic set of instructions from like the the knowledge center we have we've had other people who need a little bit more hand holding when it comes to that uh, for that process but uh, very quickly we were talking in the first week you know easily you'll be printing parts and you'll be able to print non-planar parts or any of these type of structures um it will obviously take you more than that time as you grow into those kind of uh, understanding of what's the potential inside a robotic printing cell to uh, to see how far you can push it but yeah to get up up, up and running with it I think that's really the idea of the software in particular is to get you up and running super super quickly uh, be able to start printing very very effectively fast uh, and kind of go from there right Kevin uh, um, we talked about the system of hardware and software how do you anticipate the design of the robots changing in the future and and will that help um, the system that you have with AI build yeah we've we've actually uh, gone through some revamps within our robots themselves uh, from a precision point of view um and as long as we stick to the industrial type robots uh we get the higher precision so that that's a a, a key uh feature that we need to uh keep keep that going throughout the, the the process um the other the other thing is important is that we're going to be adding not just robots but linear devices to do long long parts to print a boat for example uh, which has been done already. Um, and then we take that to the next level also as we need to be able to add other axes and multiple robots in within the system. And that's the next challenge is, is adding a lot more robots to print one part at the same time. It's a completely, it's a real big ask, but that's where the future's heading uh, because you have all of these different slicing and, and proprietary robots going in to do major parts and other ones maybe waiting and, and coming in to do uh, what they need to do at the right time. The software becomes very complex, far beyond my comprehension, but that's that's why we've got AI built to work that part of it out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's all around collision avoidance, isn't it? You know, yes, you, definitely. You, you know we, already we're having a situation with robotic printing where um, actually your part becomes a major thing you need to avoid from a collision point of view. So with the horizontal slicing, you can basically say every layer beneath that point, don't go in that area. And that's a relatively easy collision avoidance thing to say what we're talking about with robots is you could print up an entire part and then you can come underneath it for example and try and print off it for example so as the build environment changes you need to understand the collisions in that and particularly when you have multiple robots wanting to print simultaneously you have a, a dynamically changing build environment and areas where you can't go and that's definitely something we we're working on it's something we think probably about middle of next year we're going to be so that'll be middle of 2023 uh, we would expect to be having those kind of systems up and running but multiple yeah robots. it's fun lots of challenges <laughs> That sounds really exciting, and and that opens up a whole new um, set of possibilities, I suppose. And I'm well, you're, ideally, we want to be able to um, use some of our small, medium, and large cells for these mega factories, where you you send your CAD file in, it gets printed. Uh, that would be a, a really, really good goal for us. Uh, but the, the the thing is, right now, we need to be able to do some little bit of tweaking with the software uh, to get the the, the part out. And, and testing and we're, we're getting closer each day but it, we're we're to a point now where the the whole idea of, of print to or cad to print is is uh, becoming a reality 
and accelerating in terms of um, development time as well, isn't it? Um, you know, and the, the more capability you have with the hardware, the uh, the faster that process is going to be as well. That's right. Collaborating with with AI build it makes it easier for us because we can focus on the design of whatever the cell needs to be for the end user, and AI build can focus on the collaboration of the robots, the collision points, but at the same time optimizing the print. So it's not going to be long before we have these mega factories that are set up anywhere that can produce anything simply by sending in a file which um you know is it's mind-boggling but well yeah. I, mean, I think we're kind of getting relatively close to that from a things yeah. like cons consumer furniture point of view so for example mm -hmm. you can have you've already got uh, you know parametrically designed kind of websites where you have a table or a chair or something like that and you as the user can slide it and say right I actually want the table to be that long I want it to be this high or I, or I want to change the color whatever it ends up being but you you can take a standard design and twist it to your customization process now because of this automated workflows we're talking about you could take that run it through the toolpath thing and have a code to print it and wouldn't be too far away from basically saying right I'm going to you know let's say go to Ikea for, for lack of a better description I'm going to press that's the thing I want I'm going to wander around get lost in the maze have my meatballs and then by the time I come out my my chair's waiting for me to pick up as I go along you know it's, it's one of those kind of things potentials in those areas but it's definitely what we're working towards is how can we automate through the design how can we automate through the through the, the manufacture and how can we you know do this in micro factories or uh, at point of where customers need it and kind of go from there it's going to take a lot longer to get to that point in terms of aerospace automotive because the mm. regulations and the qualifications yeah. and the certification requirements but and that's why i think things like uh consumer furniture and things on those lines where there is less regulatory um work and the risk of, of, of in that areas is is just lower Brilliant. Um... Well, other furniture stores are available. Yeah, sorry, I probably shouldn't have said the one we spoke to mine. <laughs> the next time I can spend in any of them, the happier I'll be. So, uh, yeah, you can you can bleep that out, um, absolutely. <laughs> and um, I, I mean, I have seen reference to 3D printed houses recently, so I suppose that's um, that's a logical extension of, uh, of the not-so-blue-sky thinking that we're, um, we're yeah, moving towards. We're talking specifically about the polymer stuff today, but obviously things like concrete, metals, etc. That's all stuff which we can do similar kind of stuff inside the software. It's just not related to the, the specific polymer KUKA uh, cell we've been talking about. Very exciting stuff. Well, we've probably given that a really good air airing and we've, we've taken a logical path from uh, where we started with rapid prototyping all the way through to what we may see in the middle of 2023. So. Um, for Luke and Kevin, thank you very much for your um, your contributions today. It's been a very exciting conversation, and I'm sure our listeners will find it very valuable. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, thank you Luke, for joining. Yeah, thanks as, as well, guys. And obviously, feel free to reach out. Um, obviously, I've really linked in all the website and more than happy to answer any follow-up questions which yeah. may come out of this. <laughs> this Talking Industry episode is brought to you by... Thank you for listening to Talking Industry. Stay tuned across all podcast apps, follow us on social, subscribe to our newsletters. 
keep up to date at talkingindustry.org.